Our scripture this morning comes from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, be with us this morning. Open our hearts, open our minds, help us to hear, to receive, and to live your word in our lives. God, save me from me. Place me at the foot of the cross. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you. And all God's people said, Amen. The Scottish poet Robert Burns is probably uh, a poet most of us are familiar with. If not his name, at least his works. I'm sure all of you at some point or another have gotten together with friends on December 31st and at the stroke of midnight sung Old Lang Syne. If you have, if you've done that, that you've sung a Robert Burns poem. A line of Burns's that you may be even more familiar with is this. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. A century or more after Burns penned those words in his poem to a mouse, a Prussian field marshal named Moltke put them into the context of combat, saying, no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Both are telling us the same thing. No matter how well we plan or strategize, everything changes when the rubber meets the road, when battle plans drawn on a map become real people engaging in life or death struggles. The plan doesn't survive. We can plan all we want. We can script it down to the tiniest detail, but when the machinery begins to move, when the reality sets in, more often than not, those plans have to change. They must adapt to the new reality or be swallowed up. No battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. So just to give you a little more insight into how my mind works, as I was thinking about this idea this week of battle plans not surviving first contact, I couldn't help but think of weddings. Love is a battlefield, or so the song says. Weddings, weddings are expensive things, horribly so. Dresses and suits and great halls and food for hundreds and beautiful cake and beverages galore and gifts for attendants and centerpieces for tables and rice or bubbles or releasing of doves, transportation and pictures, DJs and bands and photo booths. There is an awful lot that goes into planning our modern wedding celebrations, and it can be staggeringly expensive. 
I remember seeing uh, those Bridezilla type shows with uh, my wife a few years back where the bride just had to have two dresses for the wedding, one for the ceremony and one for the reception and both costing in excess of $10,000 a piece. For a long time now, We've been fed this steady diet of fairy tale wedding nonsense. The diet has caused weddings to escalate from small family affairs to giant week-long festivals and exotic destinations. The plans get more and more elaborate. The dresses and suits more and more costly, all in an effort to plan the perfect day, the perfect day with the perfect dress, with the perfect pictures and the perfect party. But no wedding survives first contact with the wedding day. See, with all of those moving parts, there is bound to be something that doesn't go right. And so the bride and the groom stress, and they have more and more stress added to them as the day approaches. And then they spend that day worried about waiting to see what goes wrong and where they anticipate and they agonize and they forget to be there, to be present in that moment. One of the first things I tell couples who who ask me to do their wedding is that a wedding is actually just a day. It happens and it's done. Marriage is a different proposition altogether. I tell them that we do premarital counseling uh, and that it's something that we do to help make sure that the couple is looking and thinking and planning beyond that one day. That they're not merely trying to plan a great party, but that they are working at making a loving and lasting marriage. And at the rehearsal, I usually do another version of this where I tell the bride and the groom and everybody else there that things are going to go wrong tomorrow. Grandpa Fred is going to be in the bathroom at the exact moment he's needed for family pictures, or the floor runner might get a tear in it, or the flower girl may stand in the center aisle picking her nose during the vows. One of the attendants may pass out, or things may go smoothly. But regardless of what works and what doesn't, at the end of the day, you will be married. And that is the most important part. Like Christmas isn't about the presents, the wedding isn't about the celebration. It is about the marriage, the life that the couple begins together. And I tell them in no uncertain terms that no wedding plan survives contact with the wedding day. We, we have a good laugh and we all get to relax because of the truth that in the end, we will accomplish what we came here to do. The couple will be married and their life together will be starting. We're not all that dissimilar in the church. We like to have our plans drawn out to anticipate what is going to happen, and that is all well and good. So long as we remember that no plan survives contact with the reality of that event, and we have to be ready to adapt, to change our thinking, to realign our priorities, or we will find ourselves mired in disappointment and in feelings of failure. When Jesus' disciples began preaching the gospel, it was a gospel that had a great amount of urgency to it. The disciples had been hanging out with Jesus and they saw him ascend into heaven and they had heard the promise of his return. And so they assumed that Jesus meant he would be back real soon. Surely many of them anticipated Christ's return within their own lifetime. And so the church spread and grew and people watched and waited for Christ to return. 
And as the days and the weeks gave way to months and years with no return of Jesus, people started to worry. Many had walked away from Judaism and other religions to follow this Jesus. And many of their friends and relatives had done the same, or their friends and relatives had shunned them and shut them out because they believed. And then other believers and family members and friends began to die. Not of persecution, not a martyr's death, but a death of old age, of an accident at work, or of a severe illness. And those early Christians had some worries, some big concerns. First, they wanted to know, what happens to their friends who have died before Christ returns? Are they just out? Too bad, so sad? Catch you next time? Are they in some weird state of limbo? What's going to happen to them? And more importantly, what is going to happen to me if I die before Jesus comes back? And the second thing they want to know came right on the heels of that question. uh, When exactly is Jesus coming back? We hear that one a lot. Every few years, there's somebody in the news that claims to have figured out the date of Christ's return from cracking some secret Bible code or another. And so their countdown clock begins. These were urgent questions, important questions, and Paul answers them in this first letter to the Thessalonians. In fact, it is, Paul's, uh, and, uh, it is his first letter to the Thessalonians, and it's his first letter to the church historically. It is the earliest writing of Paul that we have. It's about 20 years after Jesus' death, uh, around the year uh, 50. The letter contains a lot of what we come to consider Pauline boilerplate. Uh, the elements common to all of Paul's letters to the churches. The, the greetings and the, and the praises and the thanksgivings for the faith of that particular church. And Paul's desire to visit them again soon. What makes this letter to the Thessalonians unique, other than being Paul's first, is that it specifically addresses those two issues. What happens if we die before Christ comes back? And when exactly is Christ coming back? To the second, Paul gives the only answer that any of us can give. The only answer any of us will ever get when we ask about God's schedule. It is not for us to know the day or the hour or the season. It is for us to watch and wait and be ready. The question about what happens when we die before the second coming, though, uh, is interesting. Paul tells the believers in Thessalonica that those who have died in Christ will rise first. That, in fact, they will know of Christ's return before those who are alive. So not only are they not out, but they are first in line. One of my favorite lines from Paul comes in the middle of chapter 4 where he explains why exactly he is telling them about the dead in Christ rising first. He does it to let us know that we do not have to mourn like others who have no hope. Essentially telling us that we can grieve, but we grieve differently. We grieve like those who have hope, which is vastly different from grieving like those who have none. So when our plans fall apart, when Jesus doesn't come back before our loved ones pass, it's okay. We mourn, but we mourn with hope, a hope that those who have died are going on ahead of us and we will meet them again. 
I talked about weddings uh, earlier. Uh, when Bree and I got married, it was very simple. Her dress was simple and inexpensive, at least compared to the ones we see on TV these days. And my suit was also very simple and inexpensive. And our reception was in the church basement. And we scheduled our wedding to coincide with one of the church's events where they had a big tent set up in the yard. So we had extra seating under that tent. Uh, uh, Church folks cooked the meal for us. Uh, We had M&Ms as our centerpieces. It was a very simple plan. And I honestly, to this day, don't remember much of the day. Uh, But I do remember that we had a plan. We had a plan for our lives to get married and then to move to Oscoda where she would start her first appointment as pastor uh, and then to wait until she was ordained or close to it to start having the two children we wanted. And all that went well. Bree was about four months pregnant with Michaela when she was ordained. And then we planned out the right time to start having, uh, trying for number two so that they would be about two years apart because that would make our niece Celia two years older than her brother Daniel, who was then two years older than his cousin, our daughter Michaela, who would then be two years older than her brother Carl. It was all going to plan, just about perfect. Lots of moving pieces, but we had planned well. I had finished my undergraduate studies and was plunking away at seminary. I had just lost a bunch of weight. Life was good, and then it wasn't. At 10 months old, Carl was diagnosed with leukemia. And he went for, we went from planning out the next five years of family life together to planning out how to make sure one of us was always at Mott with Carl so that he was never alone. And how we could make whichever one of us was there with him as comfortable as possible in such a place. All the planning, all of the dreams, they had to be adapted to the reality of the situation. We could no longer expect the plans we laid out on paper to reflect what reality was going to be for us. I remember a point when we thought we were pretty sure Carl had beaten the cancer. I actually began planning the party. Uh, I designed a banner uh, that said, Carl kicked cancer's keister. Uh, All those hard K sounds, I like that. And I was all set to order it when we got a phone call from his oncologist explaining to us that Carl was in fact not in remission. Actually, the cancer uh, was even stronger now and more aggressive than it was before. And so I didn't order the banner we went back to Mott after a much too short week at home, and we got back in those trenches. In the end, the only way that Carl escaped that cancer was in death. And friends, we grieved. We grieved and we mourned, and, and those who know me well know that we still do. But we did not mourn like those who have no hope. We mourned in the full and sure knowledge that we will see Carl again. That Carl is still being cared for and loved. That, folks, right there, is why Paul can say things like we read in our scripture this morning. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. Because in the end... We are with Christ, and we are with each other. There is a lot of evil in the world, and that evil makes 
that evil wants us to live in fear and to live in misery. It wants to steal our joy, whether that misery comes from chronic pain in our joints and muscles or from the loss of dearly loved family and friends. But joy, joy is where we live. It is our home. And homes are messy. Home is where the rubber hits the road and the plans fall apart. I don't know about you, but sometimes there is yelling and there is screaming in our home. And sometimes you trip over a cat. And sometimes you trip over a three-year-old pretending to be a cat. And sometimes you get burned taking a pan out of the oven. And sometimes you sit in silent tears after getting a phone call about a relative passing away. But at the end of the day, when I look at my family, at my home, when I let all of the other stuff go, I live in joy. Joy is where we live. It's what we come back to when all of that other stuff is let go. Joy is our home, and I rejoice in it always. See, joy isn't the same as happiness, it doesn't mean everything goes according to our master plans. Joy is much deeper than that. It's what we feel in spite of everything that's gone wrong. And sometimes it means we smile even when we have no reason to. And sometimes it just means we find the strength to get out of bed each day. Joy is knowing that no matter what goes wrong, it will all be right in the end. I tell my couples coming to get married, if you're married at the end of the day, it was a perfect wedding. And I think that life is a lot like that. Doesn't always go according to plan. Sometimes in really gut-wrenching ways. But I believe that at the end of the day, love wins. Love gets the last word, not pain or grief or death, but love. And that's what gives me hope. And that's what gives me joy. That's the home that I keep coming back to, the place I find the strength to carry on. So may you come home to joy and to hope this holiday season too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for the joy that you give us, the joy in knowing that all things work out. That all things, in the end, come back to you. That our pain and our grief can and will be lifted. That we will be reunited. That no matter what circumstances befall us or befuddle us, we are yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.